Well, thank you so much for making the time to take the time and listen in. My name is Jeff Fuller, pastor at Living Hope Wesleyan Church, hopeforvermont.org. And we certainly believe people's stories matters because it reveals the truth and evidence that God loves us. He is with us and he is for us. And uh, one with a tremendous story is Dr. Gary McIntosh. Dr. McIntosh, welcome in. Well, it's great to be with you, Jeff. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and uh, I remember, and this probably puts uh, the pressure on, but the last time I spoke with you, I left so encouraged, and uh, the fact that you would take time for me, but you're just an encouraging soul. So my first question is, where does that come from? Is that a natural ability, or is that from your parents, or something that you have to learn to do over the years? You know, I don't think I've ever been asked that question before, and uh, I, I don't really know. Um, I think, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm trying to think back here, you know, to uh, my history and family of origin and things. But uh, I think uh, I was um, a product of a divorced family. Hmm. Uh, my mother was actually married and divorced four times. And um, I had four fathers by the time I was nine years old. Uh, Actually, I had a a great upbringing, but I I think I missed having a father. I I think, honestly, part of my life has been searching for that father I never had. And uh, I I found that father in a lot of... um, well, primarily, uh, you know, in God himself, I found the father, but yeah. uh, God also brought a lot of men into my life over the years who have been instrumental in uh, mentoring me, encouraging me. And for some reason, I just developed a desire to help lift other people up uh, and to encourage them and particularly people in uh, church ministry. But uh, anybody in general, I try and uh, lift them up if I can and uh, to uh, encourage them in their journey. I don't know. Thank you. Just something that came out of my family, I guess. Well, thank you. And I certainly uh, am a benefactor of that and appreciate that so much. Uh, Dr. Gary McIntosh on Twitter. It's Dr. G. McIntosh. Uh, Growing up in Colorado Springs and then you went to what is now uh, Colorado Christian College. Why did you choose a Christian college out of high school? I originally was uh, planning to go to, uh, I believe it was called Colorado State College up in Greeley, Colorado. Mm -hmm. Um, My background uh, in elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, I had good success, above average success with vocal music. And uh, one of those men that came into my life was actually the director of my high school acapella choir. Uh, And he liked me enough that he he told me if I would go to college and get a degree in in vocal music and and choir directing and that sort of thing, uh, that he would guarantee me a job as uh, a teacher in the... uh, District 11 school district there in Colorado Springs. And so uh, I was kind of headed in that direction, I think. Um, But I was playing in a church softball game two days before high school graduation. And I 
slid into home plate and caught my cleat in the dirt and it broke my leg. And uh, so that summer I was in a cast. It was a full length cast from my waist all the way down to my ankle. And I was just sitting around thinking, what am I going to do? Because the doctor said it was going to take about six months for my leg to heal. And then probably another six months to really uh, get back to walking completely again. Um, as you can imagine, it was a major break. Uh, but I was just sitting around uh, thinking, well, I'm going to miss a year of college. And the pastor of my church came to me and he said, well, instead of just sitting around for a year, he says, why don't you go up to this little Bible college? Uh, at that time, it was called Rockmont college and they were located in longmont colorado which was kind of a small farming community up north of denver and he said why don't you just go up there and take a year of bible that'll be good for you to get some bible under your belt and then when you go to the um the state college uh to get your teacher's degree he said you'll you know you'll have a stronger foundation in the scripture and everything. And so I thought that made sense. The school wasn't very far away. So I could come back and forth to go to the doctor visits and things like that. And so I went up there and, um, you know, I I would say God orchestrated it. You know, it it really was not my intent to go to a Christian school. I, my intent was to go to and become a music teacher. Uh, But uh, God, redirected my life and of course when i got up there that first year of college i made a lot of friends <laughs> and uh, actually the the first young lady i met on the very first day of college is now my wife <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh you know you make friends and then um i just kept going back you know just kept yeah. going back and and slowly uh god redirected my my life towards a uh, Christian ministry. And that's so uh, interesting. And uh, it's kind of a plug for uh, Bible colleges, Christian colleges. You never know who you're going to meet, especially that first, first day. But um, I want to backtrack a little bit. I believe I read somewhere that your love for music first started or was real revealed when you were about third grade. My parents, I mentioned off here that I'm adopted. My parents sing and sing and sing. I try, but I cannot sing on tune, the right tone, tempo at all. I love music. But what is it about music that just drew you in? Was that something naturally you gravitated towards, or was that something that you did have to develop as well? Looking back on it, uh, and because of divorces in my family and everything, I didn't really have Uh, a lot of contact with my uh, paternal grandfather, but uh, he was a very musical man, uh, played the piano, wrote wrote music. Um, My actual birth father was extremely musical also. He played the trumpet, uh, he uh, played the piano. Uh, He started his own band when he was in high school. he had aspirations of being a professional trumpet player. Uh, so I think there was some history 
uh, music in my family. But uh, again, because of the divorce and everything, I didn't grow up around my birth father and my mm. uh, grandfather. Uh, but in third grade, uh, well, I guess it really started around kindergarten. Um, I used to perform for my family, uh, singing, you know, in the living room. And, mm. um, but by third grade, uh, I guess I just had the ability to be on tune, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I sang and the teachers noticed that. And I think it's one of those things where when you're younger, you're always looking for your identity. Yeah. And, you know, are you good in sports? Are you good in mathematics? Are you good in whatever? And uh, for me, I found success uh, in music very early on, uh, beginning in third grade, all the way through high school. And um, I just naturally, you know, gravitated in that direction. And I think somehow that's how God works in our lives. You know, we tend to gravitate towards what God blesses. And uh, it seems as though what God blesses is what we're, we're good at, you know, what we're skilled yeah. at. And uh, uh, I had aspirations of being a professional singer until I got to college. Mm -hmm. And then in college, all of a sudden, I realized I just didn't have the vocal range to mm -hmm. be a professional. You know, my, my yeah. range, uh, professional singers will have a three octave, sometimes even a four octave range. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just right around two octaves and, uh, I could have probably stretched that with training and everything, but, uh, it just gradually in college became, became obvious that even though I was good at music and I led music at church and that sort of thing, I, I just didn't have the, um, ability to do that as a profession. And I'm glad that the uh, the Bible says make a joyful noise, so then I can join you uh, as well without having any range whatsoever. Uh, this last year has been very unique for us here in Vermont, and uh, because we were renting a school building, because we outgrew our old building, we did not have live music for months. And I just attended a pastor's conference, and there was live music, and there's something about music that can draw one into worship. I know that singing isn't necessarily worship, but what do you think it is about music that can truly draw people into worshiping Jesus, much like none other or very few things uh, seem to get us to that place as music does? It's a mode of expression that uh, I think comes uh, deep from within side of a person. Um, you know, our breath comes from inside of us as it comes out through our vocal cords. Uh, I think there's something emotional, maybe even spiritual about that. I've never really thought about it theologically, but mm -hmm. I think there's something there that um, allows us to have a deeper expression of joy or faith or praise uh, than just saying it. You know, I, I can say praise the Lord. Right. But if I'm singing, it, it embodies kind of my entire being, I guess you would say, uh, in many ways. You know, um, uh, I, I, I don't know. You know, it's, it, I, I don't know really how to express it. But when you're singing, you're breathing, you're exhaling, you're 
thinking, you know, I, I think it's kind of a, a whole body experience. Yeah. I think that's really uh, well stated as well. Dr. Gary McIntosh makes up time. He uh, works at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. For you, did you always want to be an educator? Was that something where academics came naturally or easy for you? Or was that like the last thing on your mind is working at a university? I actually had thought many times over the years as a younger child uh, that I might like to be a teacher or a professor. Uh, you know, I think as a child, you you have these thoughts that run through your mind sometimes and uh, you don't know, you know, you really don't know how serious of a thought they really are. You know, you, uh, you think you might want to be a, a basketball player or you might want to be an accountant or whatever, you know, you, uh, but yeah, I did have, uh, I have to say, uh, I did have uh, some desire uh, to to be a teacher, professor. Um, I remember it's interesting how you look back on your life as you get older and you can see how God worked in your life even when you were younger. And I remember yeah. in eighth grade, uh, it was an eighth grade uh, history class and we were all assigned to give a uh, like a 15 minute talk to the class. Yeah. Um, and I chose the talk on basketball. And I remember making charts of basketball courts and plays and <laughs> and uh, teaching the class. And I remember the teacher saying to me, uh, you know, you, uh, you, you did a great job of that presentation. Uh, I remember him saying it was one of the best presentations he had ever heard for an eighth grader, wow. uh, that sort of thing. And, you know, it, those blessings like that, that come from teachers or parents or, uh, you know, pastors or anybody, uh, they, they really resonate with younger people. And I remember, you know, thinking to myself a number of years ago, you know, what I did in that class that day. I've ended up doing for 35 years, yeah. you know, at, at Talbot. Uh, so he saw something, maybe a skill, maybe a, an ability that I never saw. Uh, and he saw it. And just his words of encouragement and blessing to me uh, really came true. <laughs> and that, what a tremendous segue, because you've written, authored uh, several books, of which the, your latest is The Ten Key Roles of a Pastor. Is, has it been easier for you to be an author or be a professor? <laughs> well, they both kind of go together. Um, because as a professor, um, I'm always reading. I'm always doing some research. I'm always trying to update my classes. Um, and so I'm always getting new information, new thoughts, new thinking. And of course, in the classroom, you're interacting with students who are asking questions. And, um, so you're always just kind of thinking, interacting with new thoughts, new ideas all the time. And to me, I thought to myself, well, you know, why wouldn't I want to share some of the things I'm learning with other people? Uh, because a lot of pastors are so busy, they don't re don't really have time to do any kind of in-depth research. I mean, it, just putting together a sermon every week is right. a major task. 
Uh, I don't think the average person in a church realize the rigor that it takes to come up with a new talk every week, 40, 48 weeks in a right. row for many pastors. Uh, it is really a rigorous thing. And and then you add on to that all the uh, the pastoral care issues and the administration issues and budget issues and and all that. I mean, pastors really don't have a lot of time. And, yeah. and as a professor, we're given the gift of having time to do research. And so I just always wanted to kind of share. Uh, I, I love pastors. Um, I was a pastor of two small churches. And, uh, you know, I just love the regular pastor out there. Um, and I just, you know, just saw it as a natural thing to whatever I'm, I'm teaching, I can write about and whatever I write about, I can teach. I mean, it, it's a, it's a type of profession that those two things go hand in hand. It's, it's really pretty easy. Yeah. I had a uh, professor in college, Bible college, and he said that it used to be, used to be the rule of thumb that for every hour you spent preaching that, or every minute you spent preaching was an hour of research. And I think he just wanted us to preach shorter sermons. I think that's what he was trying to get to is like, if you uh, preach shorter sermons, then uh, you have less research time. One thing that you've done for years now is growth points. Can you just share a little bit it's been a tremendous resource for me, the district of the Wesleyan denomination that I'm a part of. They forward us that and uh, have us read that when it comes out. When did growth points uh, come about? And have you are you surprised at the reach that uh, this what some would say simple newsletter has accomplished? Uh, uh, I am surprised. It's amazing. Uh, when I was a pastor, this this goes back uh, to the, uh, uh, see, I actually left pastoring uh, my own church in 1983, so it's been quite a few years now. Uh, but in the 70s and 80s, when I was pastoring, uh, there was a man by the name of Lyle Schaller, uh, who was a very popular writer, and he had a little paper that he sent out to, to pastors called the Parish Paper. And I subscribed to that for quite a few years, and it was just uh, very helpful. It was one page front and back, uh, so it was easy to read. Yeah. Uh, and after I had gone to teach at Talbot, I guess this would have been about 1989 or something like that, uh, around that time, uh, Lau Schaller decided he was no longer going to uh, do his parish paper. Hmm. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, that little paper was so helpful to me as a pastor. Maybe uh, maybe there's room for something like that uh, that other pastors would be interested in. And so I decided to uh, to advertise uh, growth points. Uh, it, it went by a different name in those days, but uh, I decided to advertise it and I. I put together a mailing list of about a thousand people hmm. and I wrote one issue and it was January, 1990, I believe uh, one issue. And I sent that issue out uh, to those thousand people and said, you know, if, if you're willing to give me a $10 a year uh, as a subscription yeah. price, 
uh, I will send this to you every month. And I had 153 people subscribe. <laughs> now, here's the, here's the thing. Uh, once people subscribe, you got to produce. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> they, they paid for it. And uh, so uh, I was off and running. And, uh, you know, it, that's really been one of the best things I've ever done mm -hmm. in my ministry career for a number of reasons. Uh, it, it has gone to about seven, 8,000 pastors a year for uh, close to 33 years now, <laughs> which is just amazing yeah. uh, to me. Uh, it opened a lot of doors for me to speak and to connect with uh, churches, pastors, denominations, uh, which I didn't realize how many doors it would open at that time. Hmm. Uh, but as a writer, it forced me to write every single month. Sure. Uh, because uh, the the growth points, as you know, is just one page back and front. Yeah. Uh, that's four double space pages of of uh, type. Yeah. And and so it forced me to write every single month a four page document that made sense. <laughs> <laughs> You know, with an opening and a closing and all that. And a lot of my ideas for future books and a lot of the chapters in my books were generated as ideas in those those growth point leadership letters. So, uh, I mean, it's it's been a blessing in a, a wide range, you know, that I, I just didn't realize. Uh, and we're in our 33rd year now, which is, is amazing. I got to tell you this real quickly. When I first started in 1990, I had a fellow professor who said to me, Gary, do you think you'll have enough information to fill 12 issues a year? <laughs> and I remember saying to him, I don't know, but we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Dr. Uh, McIntosh makes up time on Twitter. It's Dr. G. McIntosh. You can find him there. And uh, as I mentioned, your latest work, The Ten Key Rules of a Pastor. First of all, how many books have you been a part of writing? Uh, that was my 26th book wow. uh, that, that I wrote myself. Yeah. Um, I've written a couple chapters and things in some other books, but uh, my own writings, that's, that's number 26. Can you just give a key factors of what made you want to write this book, The Ten Key Rules of a Pastor? Most of my writing has been, I would say, to the average pastor. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I pastored two smaller churches. Um, one church got up into the, the 200s, but, uh, you know, I, I was not a mega church pastor. I I pastored what we would think of as just a, uh, the average size church in America. And um, so I've just always had a heart for the average pastor wanting to help them to, to you know, grow their church, uh, be more effective in making disciples, uh, be better at evangelizing and, and connecting with people. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, in my own experience as a pastor in a smaller church, uh, I recognized that I wore a lot of hats. Hmm. You know, I mean, you just yeah. can't be the preacher and that's all you are in a small right. church. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you, sometimes you're the janitor. Sometimes you're the, uh, the counselor, you know, uh, sometimes you're the person who connects with uh, 
the city council in your town. And, uh, right. you know, pastors in smaller churches cannot specialize in just one uh, area of life and ministry. And, and so it just it started my thinking that, you know, there's just so many multiple hats that we wear as pastors. Uh, and I just got to wondering, where do pastors put most of their time? Mm. And uh, so I put together a survey and, you know, did a survey of pastors to see where do, do pastors put their time? What, what hats are the major hats they wear? Uh, and, you know, that kind of ended up being a book. Yeah, and I'm so grateful for it. And uh, I've received my copy. I've not, uh, in interest of full disclosure, I've not started it yet. But um, I have read a lot of your other books, and I'm just so grateful for how you do. You put it in layman's terms that I can understand, but also it's so practical. Because here in Vermont, we have a church of uh, what used to be over 100, but now it's under because of COVID or because of lack of discipleship on my part as a pastor and so we're trying to learn uh, these things. Uh, as I mentioned this past year, there has been so many changes and seemingly more on a pastor's plate. But I just want to go back to 2005. You received your Ph.D. in inner uh, culture, cultural studies. And I just wonder if that degree has helped give you perspective on seemingly what the world or what the United States has gone through this last year and a half, whether it's political unrest, social unrest, you name it, it's its happened over the last, you know, two years or so. How did that degree, how did that PhD help you just frame how we can minister to this current context of the world in which we live? I think that uh, as, all, as all doctoral programs do, they kind of teach us what we don't know. <laughs> when you get a PhD, you become an expert in a very narrow area of ministry. Uh, and it honestly lets you know that there's so much that you don't know yeah. out there. And I think with this COVID experience, it's taught us, you know, as, as leaders that, uh, wow, you know, there's a lot we don't know. You know? yeah. And and uh, and, you know, it, it's opened our eyes to uh, new ways of doing ministry that we never thought of before. You know, like most churches did not have online ministry uh, prior right, to COVID. Right, right. And uh, now almost every <clears throat> church does. You know, it's uh, uh, I've been pleased to tell you the truth, Jeff, uh, at how well the church in general was able to pivot and adjust. Mm. I mean, yeah. you know, I know, anybody who's been in church ministry knows that bringing about change in a church environment is very difficult. Right. Uh, churches are traditional. We hold to the faith once delivered, you know. Uh, uh, churches are about stability and, and uh, you know, standing true to the, the scripture has been out there for thousands of years and um, and it's just tough to bring about change. But man, did we change? Right, I mean, right. uh, you know, churches not only delivered worship online, but training online and pastoral mm -hmm. care online and funerals online and weddings online. Right. And, I mean, it's just amazing that uh, the church can change. 
uh, and we can pivot very quickly when we need to. And uh, most churches have done that, and I and uh, certainly it's been a challenge, as you mentioned. I I can't think uh, of a time I graduated from seminary in 1975, and I cannot think of a, a last thinking about over the last two years. I can't think of a more a challenging time in ministry since I graduated from seminary. As you mentioned, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, not only with the COVID thing, but the social justice stuff. And, uh, y- you know, you just go on and on the politics. Yeah. Uh, you know, pastors have not been able to do uh, anything right uh, in all the eyes of their people. You know, I mean. Uh, if you were for Biden, then you were you were upset the people who were for Trump. If you were for right. Trump, you upset them. If you didn't take a position, you upset <laughs> everybody. You know, and the same with social justice. You know, if you if if you're uh, a, 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 you know a, a, against um, you know Black Lives Matter or in right. or for Black Lives Matter or in between, you're you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean, it was just like you, you know, you you're f- for people getting the the COVID shot, against people getting the COVID shot, or we're we're for wearing masks or not wearing masks. Right, I mean, right. You you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's just it's not just been one thing. It's been two, three, four, five things uh, that have disrupted the church and challenged pastors' leadership. And no matter what uh, line a pastor took. Yeah, uh, you had people who were upset. You right. know, it's it's just been so challenging. Uh, but out of this, I do think God is remaking the church. I think uh, He's created change. He's created uh, opportunities for ministry. Uh, you know, He's pushed us back to redefine what is our basic calling. You know, what is our basic purpose? You know, as the church, and uh, I think. Everybody in in ministry leadership has had to do a lot of rethinking and refocusing, you know, and uh, I don't think that's always so bad. So, Dr. McIntosh, to kind of push in a little bit and make it personal, how have you been able to keep your daily devotions fresh during this time where it seems like not only things are happening, but they're all happening at the same time? Is it because you have a good routine and you've developed a habit? How have you been able to keep that time with God fresh and alive and not just the method, but also that spectacular experience of being able to meet with Jesus, to commune with Jesus, to have the word of God just become alive, not just, oh, I need to do it because I'm a Christian or because I hold a title somewhere? Yeah, boy, that's a good question. Um Throughout my life, I've wrestled honestly with having a what we would typically call a regular quiet time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think part of that is Western culture. Um, you know, I, in Western culture, we have to be go, go, going, do, do, doing all the time. It's, it's hard to take the space to uh, be quiet. 
and to have devotions and to pray and to, to listen to God. So I think as part of the culture, I've always kind of uh, struggled with that. I've, I've always been amazed and learned a lot from my Asian brothers and sisters and students um, who are able to maintain kind of that routine of, uh, of daily prayer. Uh, now, having said that, uh, over the years, my philosophy and approach to this has been that I try to walk daily in prayer. Uh, you know, so mm -hmm. I may not have an eight o'clock a.m. prayer time, but I try to pray as I walk throughout the day. Yes. Um, and so I've always tried to maintain kind of a um, an, uh, an attitude or practice of devotion throughout the day, uh, throughout the week, uh, and then have, I guess you would say, sabbatical times occasionally, right. you know, sometimes once a week, sometimes once a month, but a more concentrated uh, sabbatical time, a few hours a day, something like that. Um, you know, so occasionally what I'll do is, uh, is be able to get away and, uh, and read the Bible and pray and write um, ideas down on a little notebook or something, yeah. maybe for two hours or maybe for four hours or, or something like that. Um, but I think uh, what I've noticed with this, uh, this COVID thing, it, it's really forced me to think about what's important. Mm -hmm. uh, because you're right. A lot of the things that we have done in the past, you know, we just get caught up, I think, in, in Western society. We get caught up in the doing of things so much that we sometimes don't take the time to think about what's important. And uh, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, I have done a lot of speaking uh, engagements. And so for, I would say the last 10 years or so, I probably average, average 25 speaking engagements a year. And that entails about three days of travel for each. Right. Right. Uh, so that's 75 days of travel and, uh, anywhere from 30 to 60 nights away from home on the road in a yeah. hotel and, and all that goes with that, you know, and the, the, the busyness of that. And all of a sudden, uh, when COVID hit, I have zero, zero uh, speaking engagements because no one's doing conferences. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Churches aren't meeting. Right. You know, okay. Uh, and that was a shock to the system. Uh, uh, it was a shock to my routine. And I think what it did is it shocked me back to having more free time. Hmm. Free time to think, to pray, to read, um, and to think about, okay, uh, is the pattern of life I was living the best pattern nice. of life? Um, I mean, it was fun, <laughs> <laughs> but... Is it the best for me, for my family, for my walk with the Lord? You know, um, and 
you know, I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it probably has caused me to say, look, you know, a lot of the stuff I was doing was good, but was it the best? Right. right. You know, um, I've got to reestablish better priorities of time usage. Um, I'm older. I've got to figure out, okay, uh, where do I invest my energy? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that COVID <clears throat> has really caused me as a person to rethink those priorities, uh, energy usage, uh, y- you know, what's important in life right? and things like that. And uh, um, so, yeah, I think with with COVID, there's been more time to have private prayer and thinking and and Bible reading and, and all that. And. I think that's kind of happened in a general way, probably with everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Although I know some pastors are really busy. Yeah, it, it does give us that opportunity, though, and then we get to make our own priorities. But that is something where we've had to step back. But uh, Dr. Gary McIntosh on Twitter, it's at Dr. G McIntosh. And a couple questions, then we'll let you go. And thank you so much for just being generous with your time and just giving us such insight and wisdom. Uh, churchgrowthnetwork.com. I believe it was 1982 when you first became part of the church growth movement. Church growth back then, what did it mean versus what does it mean now? There's so much talk about the church is the people. It's not the building, which I understand. Yeah. But we need to be making disciples. Church Growth Network, your first um, influence with church growth, that movement. What comes to mind when you think about 1982 up until 2021? Sure. Well, uh, originally, uh, church growth simply meant... Uh, everything that's involved in helping men and women, boys and girls, become followers of Jesus Christ and uh, members of his church. So the church growth originally was focused on uh, evangelism and connection of people to the church, uh, where they could be taught all things that Christ uh, taught us. Uh, so it was really about making disciples, uh, and uh, church growth was a new term back in the seventies and and eighties. It was fresh. Uh, it hadn't picked up a lot of baggage at that point. Um, and it basically meant, uh, effective evangelism and evangelism was effective if people believed in Christ and were baptized and became part of a, a local church. Uh, now it started changing in the late eighties and early nineties, uh, because pastors uh, needed help with things like, uh, uh, developing vision for the church, long range planning, um, advertising and that sort of thing. And so gradually over time through the late eighties and the nineties, um, church growth, the the movement itself kind of morphed away from strictly disciple-making emphasis to more of an emphasis on uh, advertising, marketing, uh, church administration, and that sort of thing. Um, And uh, that's unfortunate, but uh, that's what happens. Um, 
And by the end of the 1990s or so, uh, you know, there were new movements that were coming along, the missional church movement, church health movement, things like that. Um, what I've discovered is in the United States that th these movements like church health, church renewal, church growth, missional church, they last about 15 or 20 years. Hmm. And then there's new movements. So essentially what happens is these, these movements are generally, generationally, I can't even say that word, generationally <laughs> driven. Yeah. So uh, my parents' generation, it was all about church renewal. And then my generation, it was church growth. Um, and then uh, the generation, what we would call Gen X, was about church health. Mm -hmm. And today's generation is more about missional church. Um, and so th these, these different movements are, all of them, they're seeking to help the church be more fruitful, be more effective. Uh, but they become buzzwords. And, uh, you know, they typically encompass kind of a set of principles or a set of methodologies that are good for about a generation, which is about 20 years. Yeah. And then there has to be a new a new movement. And so um, I think we're about ready for a new movement. The missional church movement has been around for um, going on close to 30 years now, 20, mm. 20 to 25 years. Most people still think of missional church as something fresh and new. But it actually was first talked about in the late 1990s, like around 1996, 1997. Wow. Um, but uh, I think all these movements are good. I think they're, what we want to do is we want to take the best of each of these movements and learn from them uh, how we can be more fruitful, uh, you know, as, as God's leaders in his church. And so that's what I've been trying to do through some of my writings is to, uh, I think most people know me as a church growth person and uh and I, and I don't mind that because I am. Uh, the church growth movement is my roots, and I believe that church growth understood properly uh, is very biblical yes. uh, because it is just about making disciples. Dr. McIntosh, before we let you go, again, thank you uh, for making the time on Twitter. It's Dr. G. McIntosh. And uh, I've heard it said from some authors that they have written more books than they have read. And I think some pastors have maybe <laughs> preached more sermons than they've listened to, whether it's Church Growth Network or local church ministry, vocational pastors. How important is it that we, people like myself, engage with a coach or a consultant or even a counselor so we are growing, but we see our deficiencies so we can be vulnerable, but we're also asking people to hold us accountable so we can exhibit some of the grit or resilience that really needs to be taking place, I feel, with the local church ministry. I just get so um, discouraged at times seeing pastors either leave the ministry or at worst leave their families because they feel so much pressure or whatever they the excuse they make. But for yourself, when you think of pastors like myself in a local church setting, how important is it that we have people that hold us accountable and coach us along the way? To be really fruitful in ministry, uh, there's, you know, a number of things that 
come into play. But um, the most recent research on on uh, church planting, uh, church revitalization, uh, those sorts of studies, uh, they all point out that one of the key ingredients to being a fruitful pastor is that you have a coach. Hmm. Uh, it keeps coming up over and over again. Now we could we could call it a mentor, we could call it an advisor, a coach, we could call it a friend. You know, but uh, pastors that seem to do well over a, a, a period of time, long period of time, they tend to have uh, people in their lives who they can turn to for advice or just to talk and share their feelings. Um, pastors who are truly alone uh, usually crash and burn hmm. uh, eventually because ministry is such a pressure uh, on us. You know, we wear so many hats. Uh, you know, there's we're 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 in the ministry twenty four seven. You know, there's just no way to get around it. Uh, we can get rest and things, but we're still we're still there on call, right? right. Connected emotionally, mentally, spiritually to, to the ministry that we're in. Um, and we just need that, uh, that person. Now, what I found for me is that uh, there's been multiple persons. There hasn't been just one person who's been in my life, uh, you know, for 40 years. Uh, but God has brought various people in and out of my life at various times. And uh, when I needed them, there was somebody there. Uh, but for pastors, we have to be looking for those people. I, uh, I, I tell my students all the time, uh, people that you would like to have mentor you are busy. And they're not necessarily looking for you. But if you're looking for them, uh, you know, if you would connect with them and say, Hey, can I take you out to breakfast? And, uh, you know, can I buy you breakfast and, yeah. or can I buy you lunch? Uh, you know, could I have, you know, two hours of your time? A lot of times these people will do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes they'll do it consistently for, uh, even a two or three years or something. Yeah. Uh, uh, of course, you know, then there's other people that might just be in your church, you know, a person or, uh, another pastor that, uh, you know, you could connect with, uh, for breakfast or lunch or something. But I, I think the onus is on us as pastors to, to seek out, uh, mm. individuals, uh, because a lot of times they don't come to us. Yeah. Um, uh, or if they do, maybe we don't recognize it, <laughs> I right, guess. Right. But yeah, ministry today is a continual um, learning, uh, continual schooling type of experience. You know, we, we just got to constantly be learning. Right. And and if, if we if we keep reading, you know, it amazes me when pastors leave school, they quit reading. <laughs> uh, uh but when you read about a lot of these, what we would call successful pastors, uh, 
you know, let's take like a, a Nelson Searcy, for instance, as some of your folks might know of. Yeah. You know, right. he reads like two books a week. Right. <laughs> you know, right. Um, I try and read a book a month. <laughs> but, you know, uh, yeah, we've just got to have continually learning, continual learning environment that comes from reading, uh, maybe going to a conference, listening to uh, podcasts like what you're doing, uh, you know, having a mentor in our lives. Uh, it's a constant learning environment, that's for sure. Yeah, and it seems so easy now just with podcasts, with audiobooks, uh, and there's so much information. And at times I feel like I'm always playing catch up, so I have to check why I'm learning as much as I am. But uh, I think we can always find ways to show God's love to other people because He loves us so much. But Dr. Gary McIntosh, always a pleasure. I am just honored that you would make the time and uh, your nuggets of wisdom is pure gold for the soul. And I just thank you so much for making the time today. We wish you all the best. Thank you, Jeff. It's always good to be with you. And one of these days, I'm going to be in Vermont and we'll see each other. Yes, sir. Let's do it. We'll make that happen. So, uh, Dr. McIntosh, thanks again for your time. God bless. And God bless all your listeners, too. Oh, thank you so much. And again, uh, Dr. Gay McIntosh, you can find him on Twitter, Dr. G McIntosh. And uh, my name is Jeff Fuller, pastor at Living Hope Wesleyan Church, hopeforvermont.org. We love you because Jesus loves us and we want to be like him. Thanks, everybody.